I'll give you a few minutes to get used to this uh, North Carolina redneck accent. Uh, you have red dirt around here, so you should get the redneck thing. We are <laughs> so thankful to be here. In fact, before I go any further, I'd like uh, my beautiful wife, Darlene. Darlene, would you stand up? This is Darlene. Some of you will be with her. Um, she, this past Cinco de Mayo, May 5th, was our 42nd anniversary. So that's proof the gospel's true. Two um, broken, selfish sinners like us have been very grateful for God's faithfulness in our own stories, but also in our coupleship. And uh, so thankful that Darlene's here and uh, so thankful for, for more of the Nashville delegation. Franklin, right here, Ray and Janie. It's just great to think this much of Tennessee is here. So we're uh, so thankful and uh, uh, actually, you may meet at some time during the course of the weekend, uh, Ray's worship leader, uh, Ben, remarkably talented man of God and his beautiful wife, Robin. But anyway, enough about Tennessee. Uh, I want to say on the front end, I want to throw down the gauntlet during this first word that I'm praying that this will be uh, one of the most freeing, welcoming, non-posing, non-pretending conferences you're going to attend not just in 2014, but I'm going to go ahead and grab next year as well. Want you to know right on as we come to Scripture this afternoon that none of us, none of us in this room are beyond the reach of God's grace. None of us are beyond the need of God's grace. I will say this now, and you through the course of these next three days will believe it as you listen to some of my own story. Nobody in this room needs the grace of Jesus more than me. I am not near as free as Jesus intends. I am still way more triggered by old wounds than I wish I were. I don't love nearly the way Jesus loves me. So that's how I know among a long other list of why I need Jesus. In fact, some of you know that Martin Luther after his radical conversion to radical grace, uh, as he began uh, pouring and pounding the gospel into his students, uh, he said a lot of great things, but one of my favorite things that relates to me is he said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. And I think that's one of the reasons why God has called this introvert to the ministry of the gospel. I'm called to preach it and teach it because I forget it too much. And remembering in Scripture is so much more than simply uh, data recall. Uh, we remember biblically when we, into the present moment, know the mighty acts of God and all their saving, liberating, transforming freedom. So when we talk about forgetting the gospel, that's far more than just memory recall. It's, it's, it's what it means to know that as a people called to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the only way we even begin to find forgiveness for not doing that is in the gospel, but then the only way we find power to begin to say, yes, Lord, make me that free, it's in the gospel. So for the next several minutes, I'm gonna invite my heart and your hearts to go through what we're simply calling the gospel according to Zephaniah. Now, I love this part of Zephaniah. It is way not the first time I've preached it. It's one of those homeroom passages for me 
that continually confronts me with the good news that there's nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. Because in this amazing prophecy of two and a half chapters of real judgment and then a half chapter of utter unadulterated, take the top off of the fire hydrant, get out of your way because rivers of grace are coming at you. In this book, I remember why Jesus has come and why he is so beautiful and what it means for us to celebrate that we Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians. Now, one more comment here. I realize that uh, what I've been told is somewhere between 50, 60% or so of us are in vocational ministry. And some of us are praying about that. Uh, would you agree with me on the front end? We are messes. Can you, can you freely acknowledge? Okay. All right. Pastors, pastors' wives, church planners, those in waiting. Uh, uh, I want you to know, because been there, done that, still there. Some of you are big time herding puppies at this conference. Some of you would perhaps gladly trade in your church for a Diet Coke right now. Maybe some of you are hoping to find some job on the island and not go back to wherever you came from. I mean, you know, and we should not be surprised, should we? Because as we read the scripture, we see that the call to uh, live by and for the grace of Jesus, uh, it, it, it does bring with it a lot of challenges. And I want you to know that, uh, that uh, it, is, it is well understood that some of you and your marriages are in a very difficult place, not because we've read any interviews, but because we know our marriages and our hearts, right? Amen, Darlene? We need the gospel all the time. Uh, some of you are perhaps in, uh, in very um, painful, raw places of betrayal because you sense your church wants to trade you in for Diet Coke. Uh, please, starting this afternoon, moving forward, remember with me, the gospel is the end to all posing and pretending. You're not here to impress anybody. I don't want you to primarily hear the chatter of people that are being blessed right now and then go to your place of shame. We all need desperately about what we're going to, about to read. So let me pray for us once again. And then I'm going to give you a brief introduction to Zephaniah, where he shows up in the history of redemption and, and, and why his story for us is so timely. So let me pray once again. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit, most holy, most loving, most present triune God, I thank you for the utter privilege of belonging to Jesus and to be with these who do as well. Uh, Lord, uh, would you take a very weak, a very broken, a very insecure man, and for the next season, uh, be pleased to uh, release the aroma of grace through me, to your glory and to the benefit of your people. I thank you for Pastor Steve and for the remarkable staff in this church, for the Gospel Coalition, Lord, for a whole a gaggle of men and women that want nothing more and will pray for nothing less than for a Gospel renewal this weekend, this very week. Come now as we seek to make much of Jesus. Father, for your glory, through the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before I begin reading, and we're going to jump in reading, um, 
at verse 9 in chapter 3. So if you have a copy of scripture, either electronically or in your hand, uh, go ahead and let you know I'm, I'm still stuck in uh, NIV 84. So that's the model I'm driving. Uh, I, I love ESV, love a lot of translations, but uh, kind of the oldest Bible I have with most of my enduring markings and coffee stains is right here, and I've had this puppy since the late 70s. So uh, NIV 84. But uh, a little, little bit of background. So who was Zephaniah? Uh, if the question before us today would be, so what kind of preaching did God use to bring about one of the greatest reforms and revivals among his people, then one of the answers would be, well, let's go to Zephaniah. Because he was one of God's sons raised up during the time of good King Josiah. Some of you know the story of the kings, and there were more kings that didn't get the covenant than did. And Josiah was a very unique king in Israel. Both his grandfather and father uh, failed miserably. And so his heritage was not one of growing up necessarily seeing great faith modeled for him. In fact, uh, just to demonstrate further God's sovereignty, the way he does everything, uh, do you remember with me how old Josiah was when he was actually appointed king? Now, there was an overlapping, but you remember how old Josiah was when he became the king of Israel? Anyone know for the Bible? Eight years old. Now, just think about that. Who but God would do such a thing? Well, uh, something about an infant king that came a lot later in the story. But um, Josiah, uh, his years, about 640 to 609 B.C. Zephaniah's ministry was from 640 to 621 B.C. So strong overlapping there. Again, Josiah is king from 640 to 609 B.C. Zephaniah raised up by the Lord from uh, uh, 640 to 621. Now, the renewal, the great reform under King Josiah, it broke out 621, 622-ish, or maybe we should say 622, 621-ish, because we're going in reverse order. So hold that in mind now as you understand what's going down here. So if we were to start reading at chapter 1, verse 1, you probably would um, not enjoy it a whole bunch, because the first two-thirds of Zephaniah appropriately uh, represent God bringing judgment against the nations around Israel, but also his great, strong, impassioned lament against his people. Uh, the people of God called and uh, created and designed to be a light to the nations became a blight to their own community. And that story tragically was repeated over and over and over and over and over. God's people are Cinderella with amnesia. We are God's forgetful pilgrims, as Michael Griffiths years ago, uh, the leader of uh, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, used to put it. We, we, we forget whose we are. We forget our story. Rather than finding our place in God's story, we try to give God bit parts in our stories. And so that's going on in Israel when... Josiah, the reform begins. And of course, you'll remember one of the remarkable things about the reform was they rediscovered Torah in the temple. Go figure. The high priest one day is rambling around and, oh, here's some scrolls. What must this be? Oh, I've heard about the word of God. I mean, can you imagine something as crazy as that? 
God's people, God's priests, God's worshiping community lost the scriptures. Now, we know physically you don't have to lose your Bible to lose the Bible, right? And so, nonetheless, that reform, as all reforms begin with the voice of God, happens when the scriptures are rediscovered. And there's a public reading of the scripture, and of course, there's the prophetic work. And, and, and that work's being done by Zephaniah, and, and judgment's brought to bear. Um, see, it's only we who understand the gospel that can, can even think about that judgment and not, well, not wanting to ramp it down. Uh, as, as we know, it's the demands of the law of God ultimately that drive us to Jesus. And really the problem with all legalism, pragmatism, and Christian moralism is they're always reducing the demands of the law so that Jesus at best is a second chance, but never the second Adam. So there's a lot of great thundering going on in Zephaniah. God is saying, folks, I'm not Santa Claus here. I mean this. I am a thrice holy God and I must bring judgment. And so you're going along chapter one, chapter two, through the first part of chapter three, and then all of a sudden you're just not prepared for what takes place in the text. But is that not true of what the gospel is all about? We're not prepared for good news. And we need it, but when it comes, we just don't believe it. We, we think there's crazy making going on here. Some of you know the phrase crazy making. You know what it meant to live in a home, maybe a family of origin, a parent, a friend that just said horribly uh, incongruent things that made you feel crazy. Well, this is redemptive. This is almost redemptive crazy because of the utter contrast between judgment and grace. Let's pick up our reading at verse 9. No, actually, let me back up to uh, first half of verse 8. So Zephaniah 3, uh, verse 8. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Verse 9. Then, we're going to begin to see the shift. Then will I purify the I will purify the lips of the peoples. Notice the plural. Please hold on to that plural image. God speaking, I am going to judge. And really for the first two and a half chapters, he's been given plenty of reason why he should judge all of us. Not just the nations that don't bow the knee to the one true living God, but to us who trade in the worship of God for the idols of our hearts. But, but we begin to see this ray of hope. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. An image of hope for the first time in the books beginning to emerge. The, the image of a grand people coming shoulder to shoulder. They're, they're, they're going to be coming home. They're going to be coming to the place of true worship. I will purify and I will gather all these peoples. And this shoulder-to-shoulder, -shoulder, this glorious picture of, of unity and reconciliation. Look at the reach of this vision that Zephaniah is now bringing to bear to a people that should be shuddering under the weight of the judgment of God. Verse 10, from beyond the rivers of Cush, that's, that's really way down into Africa. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people, will bring me offerings. No possibility of it not happening. This is... God making promises that God alone can keep, which really is why we call it a covenant and not a contract. The whole Bible 
It's not a contract, folks. Say hallelujah about that one. Aren't you glad it's not God did his part, I do my part, and somehow we come up with a, a, a workable solution. No, covenant is a unilateral, monergistic commitment from God to be a great and gracious redeemer. Hallelujah. So here the Lord is making promises he alone can keep. And, and it's this vision. Of course, we know the backdrop to this, right? This wasn't new. This was rooted in the day when God grabbed hold of a pagan man that was not seeking him named Abram from Ur of the Chaldeans, grabbed him out, put him in the mathematics of mercy by saying, count the stars. When you finish counting the stars, count the sand on the earth. And oh, by the way, when you're done counting the sand on all the beaches of the world, count the dust. So shall my people be through the people I'm going to make of you, Abram. Because the people I'll make of you are going to deliver the one that I've already promised will come, who will crush the head of the serpent. You, Abram, are going to become Abraham, the father of many nations. And all families on the face of the earth are going to be blessed as Israel becomes the womb of the Messiah. We see, Zephaniah, remember that story. God never forgot that story. The entire Bible is bound up with God's commitment to be God. Again, hallelujah. I guess we should just say hallelujah. We should never subdivide hallelujah by any hyphen. But, but so here, here again, God's remembering to be God. God's remembering to be gracious against the people that don't deserve it. Now, let's, we're going to begin to consider just how enormous this is and why it requires Jesus and why it gives Jesus to every weary, worn-out, heavy-laden heart in this room today. So this vision of a scattered people coming that have already been promised through the vehicle of a pagan Abram that becomes Abraham, whose ministry is going to be in terms of the multi-abacus counting of stars, sand, and dust. And, and here's where this is going to lead. Verse 11, look at this. On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me. Great, for, hold on to that. Some of you, like me, have been have maybe settled the guilt issues in life long before the shame issues in life? See, the gospel speaks to our guilt and our shame. I want some of you to know that during this conference. Some of you absolutely could preach one of the clearest messages on justification and the, and, and the riddance of your guilt by the blood of Jesus, but you're still haunted by shame. See, this gospel brings to bear the breaking of the power of guilt and shame. Guilt says, I broke, I broke the law. Shame says, I'm a broken person. And then there's just some of us that have this fractured inside. I know that because I'm one. Uh, again, I, I don't think I'll have to work hard to convince you I am a broken person. It doesn't define me. But there's parts of my story that make me uh, uh, a very odd child. Right, honey? Right, right darling? <laughs> Always ask our wives. They know best. If there were such a thing as a fourth member of the Trinity, it would be a wife of a pastor. But I don't know. Strike that image, please. Don't claim that for yourself. 
On that day you will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you have done to me. Clear judgment, but great promise, because I will remove from this city those who rejoice in their pride. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. But I, I will leave within you the meek and humble who trust in the name of the Lord. Stop there for a moment. So there's a promise here going on. The God who has every right to bring judgment and will bring judgment promises, yet I remember a covenant I have made to be a gracious God. And, and, and here's what Zephaniah is saying. He's picking up on the theme, as we'll see again in a, in a moment, the theme of remnant. Now, the theme of remnant in the Old Testament is enormous. Uh, Ray and Janie and Darlene and I happen to live in a city where there's a church actually called the remnant, and they believe remnant theology means God bless us for and no more. We get it, you don't. Literally is a church called the remnant, and they believe that we're, every one of us, not just in Nashville, but the rest of the world are outside of God's covenant. Because see, they think remnant theology is about a deeper life club that will be preserved at the end. Dear, 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 dear friends, you know how small the remnant had to become for God to actually be gracious to the nations? How, how little did that remnant have to become? Guess. No door prizes. Thank you. I guess all I wanted to see, just one finger going up. Let me read the verse and I'll make the application, then we're going to see where this goes. So the Lord's promising, I will be gracious. My people from the nations will come. Because here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to deal with pride, going to deal with shame, going to deal with guilt. I'm going to leave within you this people. Verse 13, the remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will speak no lies, nor will deceit be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Hallelujah. See, this theme of remnant for Zephaniah is anticipating where every single promise of God ends up with Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. We don't preach a sermon until it ends up with Jesus. We, we don't understand any passage of Scripture unless it ends up with Jesus. Because he's the remnant. He, he is the one that would represent that would represent a people from the nations, shoulder to shoulder, coming unabashedly to be welcomed by God, to be loved of Him, enjoyed by Him, set free to exist not for themselves, but for even more. See, that's a part of what I pray we will know this week again, that none of us is called to be a nice English-China cup of grace, but a glorious pitcher being poured out, conduits, this gospel comes to us that it might reflue us. It's why some of you in difficult places now, Darlene and I uh, met at lunch today, delightful couple, you know, uh, fixing to launch a church. Another couple we met yesterday that launched one. Well, where are the dashes? Daryl, you here? Where are you? Daryl, all right, all right. So we're listening to Daryl and his beautiful wife at the table last night. And downtown urban Toronto is not exactly a place where they're saying, Daryl, will you come over here and, and just... Find a cathedral big enough to hold the 20,000 of us that want to learn about grace? No, it's, it's hard. But you know what? 
God makes promises God keeps. And you know what? Dear friends, your labors in the Lord are not in vain, ever. You see, uh, Prince Edward Island, Nashville, Tennessee, Franklin, Tennessee, West Haven, River Landing, uh, Saskatchewan. Where is that, by the way? <laughs> I mean, you cannot name a single place in the entire universe where one day the knowledge of God's glory will not fill as the waters cover the sea. Because God's made commitment that, that God's going to pull off. So we don't have to be clever and cute this week. We don't have to just kind of do our pastor workshops on, tell me your three best things you did to get your core group. No, please, there are things we learn. But it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel, it's the gospel. It's more the gospel. And then it's some more the gospel. Because the gospel is the power of God in salvation, period. Not colon, semicolon. So, so here's what this looks like. So God, through Zephaniah and every single prophet, is pointing towards the one who alone is remnant. And this is why for you and for me and for all of our people, we've got to make sure our people are bef long before they begin to think about Jesus as their model, they must see him as their substitute. Now, Jesus does model a lot of important stuff for us. Please understand that. But he is our substitute in life, even before his death, to fulfill this promise of remnant. Now, let's see how Zephaniah now begins to blow the doors off of what that's going to mean and what it does mean for us. Zephaniah is living what we call proleptically. He's looking towards, teleologically, he's looking, he's anticipating the hope that God has been promising forever. So he's looking in advance, but you know what? He saw with an unbelievably glorious eye of faith and gives us language and image that we understand better than even those in his day could have understood. So Zephaniah has made it clear God's going to act on behalf of many through a remnant. And this is why, you know, we, we now go into verse 14 through 17, uh, which will exhaust the rest of our time. Uh, this beautiful afternoon. So, verse 14. So, judgment, 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 really warranted, really necessary, that really happens. And now a people called to rejoice with every cell in their being. Verse 14, and again, please, uh, uh, you, you, to really appreciate Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17, you have to understand even a lot better than I was just able to give you in summary, what preceded it. These are not sweet verses. These are profound truths that are meant to lift our burden today, that are meant to free us to show up in the most blessed and the most difficult ministries represented in this room. L listen to this command. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Let me suggest to you that those commands are just as binding as the command, do not steal, do not murder. Um, and, and in fact, in some ways we could suggest Zephaniah 3, 14, uh, uh, in many ways, is, is a good understanding of the first two of the Ten Commandments. What does it really mean to have no other gods before him? It doesn't mean you don't just have a jade Buddha in your closet. 
See, the commands of God are meant to be liberating. They really, if they're understood, they, are, they describe life in the Garden of Eden before there was sin and death. So think about the first two of the Ten Commandments. Is, again, we hear this. The call to sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Finger there for a moment. Even before we look on into the next verse that gives us the basis for that. Um, where in your life, when in your life have you ever experienced that kind of joy? And I mean, literally, think about it for a moment. Now, here, here's the question. When have you been most alive to unabated, unrestricted joy? And, and literally, you know, taping or not taping, I want, to, I want for, for a few of you, some of you to say, all right, when, when was I most alive? When, when do I have any corollary parallel to what it means to be so alive in joy? I could not contain myself. What comes to mind, any one of you? And just don't make it spiritual, please. Okay, I'm not just looking for a nice Guidepost magazine story here. When were you out of control, happy, joyful, and you didn't care who saw it? Food. Food. All right, what did you eat? Just do better. What? Tell me, tell me what, it, what did it taste like? What was it? Tell me about that steak. It was a juicy steak. <laughs> it was a juicy steak. All right, you're getting better. That's right. That's, that's, that's getting me hungrier. That's good. But you, but you know what? There's something t- terribly, gloriously beautiful. You know what? Every meal ultimately should stir within our hearts. The longing for the feast from which all feasts define their meeting, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Why do you think the Bible's so full of eating? Amen. <laughs> There's some time, there, is some, there are moments in culinary wonder when you sit down and there is the perfect Pittsburgh-style steak. It's crusty on the outside. It's perfectly warm in the middle it's who you're with, it's what you eat, it's all that. And you say, oh. And we start using those metaphors. This is heavenly. Okay, other, just give me images of when great joy. You just said, I don't care who's watching. I'm an introvert, but I don't care. I'm out there. When else were you that joyful and alive? Holding your first baby. You know, every time I've asked that question, invariably, Someone says, now some men say, that's the day I passed out. No, actually, I, I wasn't happy. I needed ether or, or no, I needed, you know, res- resurrection. No, but, but many, some of us would say, holding your, the utter miracle of life, of realizing the, the labor that your wife just endured and uh, the whole thing. So yeah, newness of life. What, well, I missed one over here. Same thing. All right, see, that, that image should be profound or just something, it just, it's knee-buckling wonder. You know, you're just... Uh, overwhelmed. Just a couple more maybe so we really get it. Your wedding day. That's awesome. Hold on to that image because I'm going to come to one of those in a minute. Yes. Wow. Hearing your two-year-old sing to Jesus. If that wouldn't do it, you got very wet firewood. (laughs) You know, can I tell you one of mine? When I really was just out of control, happy with joy, you're going to think, what kind of speaker did you pull in here, Steve? It's the time I saw, for the first time, Paul McCartney in concert. <laughs> now, i got a mus- musician aficionado here. He get, Ray gets this. Paul McCartney had just begun uh, feeling good about singing Beatles music again. It was in the Atlanta Omni. I was 10 rows dead center. A friend of mine uh, knew 
um, at that time, his wife, Linda, Linda used to be, Linda was Linda Eastman from the Eastman Kodak family. My friend knew her brother, so he got us these amazing tickets. And so I'm 14 years old, and the Beatles come onto the scene. I see the Ed Sullivan Show live, and so much of the soundtrack of my life and coming to faith was wrapped around Beatles songs. So here's Sir Paul McCartney with this amazing band. And you know what? When, when he goes into, I don't know what the song was. I don't know if it was paperback writer. I don't know if it was help. I need somebody. I stood up on my chair. This nice, quiet, introverted Presbyterian pastor was a little girl at Shea Stadium holding on, you know, it's the Beatles, it's the Beatles. I just felt unrestrictedly free and alive. Now laugh, but join me. Because you see, our, our God is saying here, this is what I made you for. I made you to be alive without governors. I made you to be alive unrestrictedly. And this is why God has to command joy in his people. Rejoice and be glad with all of your heart. Now, here's the basis. Look at verse 15. The Lord. This isn't just be happy, clappy. No, you know, folks, we're not trying to create services of worship where we're just enthusiastic. I mean, anybody can throw a dog and pony show. But here's a profound theological reason why we, even these next three days, should come to fresh joy. Whether or not we stand on the pews or not, that is so not the point. Why should we think about rejoicing before our Lord with everything we have in our why. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear. O Zion, do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The great Emmanuel promise that runs through the whole of Scripture. God with us, God, for us. The Lord your God is with you, which means in your midst, around you, over you. The triune, dancing God, making Mary over you. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to say, he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Three phrases that will frame the rest of this conversation. I want you to see in this text these three things. The Lord has done something immeasurable for us. Secondly, the Lord will be someone inconceivable towards us. And then thirdly and lastly, the Lord will accomplish something irrepressible through us. Again, those three phrases. The Lord has done something immeasurable for us. Secondly, the Lord will be someone inconceivable towards us. And then lastly, the Lord will accomplish something irrepressible through us. Starting with the first of three as we begin to land this plane and launch this conference. So this great call to joy that runs throughout Scripture, let's remember right now that Jesus, John chapter 17, shows us He is praying that we will know the fullness of His joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. That's not simply the joy the Lord gives us. It's the fact that our God is a joyful God himself. And so this call to joy is grounded in this theology of anticipating what's the Messiah really going to accomplish. The Lord has taken away your punishment. This is what he's done immeasurably for us. Now, 
certainly, as with all Scripture, there was some fulfillment of the Lord taking away the punishment of his people in Zephaniah's day. We know there was a reform. We know there was a, a relenting. There was, there was God who promised judgment, uh, choosing to be gracious with his people in a way that certainly connected with his vision. But of course, we know this. Where would God ultimately take away the punishment of his whole covenant people from all the nations? Where did that happen? That sounds so weak. It's like uh, Calvary. Is that your cross? Is that what you're eating, Scott? Calvary. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Zephaniah is saying to us, when that Messiah would come, here's a part of what he would accomplish. He would exhaust. He would propitiate. He would completely deal with all the deserved judgment for the whole family of God. If 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 the knowledge not just of this great theological formula of atonement and propitiation, but when that reaches into your gut as a guilty sinner like me, knowing that you don't want God to be fair. When we really begin to understand, hallelujah, you weren't fair, you didn't give me what I deserve. Are you ever like me? Please tell me you are. You drive looking around for a parking place. You even think you deserve a parking place close to Starbucks. Who are all these people showing up at 10.32 when I want Starbucks and there's no parking places? Lord, I had a great quiet time today. I deserve a parking place. <laughs> now, you don't think that, but we live that way, this spirit of entitlement. Folks, those who enjoy the gospel the most are those who understand the fact that God never exaggerated when he demanded perfection. I mean, this evening, I looked ahead at what, uh, oh my goodness, what a... Uh, what Brother Ray's going to talk to us tonight about the beginning of, uh, of a grace culture. Oh, my word, if, if the Beatitudes don't level the playing field, if they don't highlight we need Jesus, if Matthew 5, 6, and 7 don't show us, there better be a Savior. I don't need a life coach. So the Lord has done something immeasurable for us. Please hear today, right now, my brothers and sisters in Jesus. If you know Jesus, here's how amazing grace is. All of your sins, past, present, and future, in word, thought, and deed, are already punished. God will never remember your sins against you because he remembered them against Jesus. Jesus has exhausted God's judgment for your sin. Not just the 4% you know, but the other 96% as well. You are guilt-free. The Lord has done something immeasurable for you and for those weary, broken people you walk with and for the people that don't give a flying Houdini about your God. The Lord has done something immeasurable. Let's rest in this good news. Now let's go on here. So much more I could say about that. But first of all, please, when you hear, read, or buy a Bible just because the Bible has the word propitiation in it, some of us trade it in our NIVs, but the ESV, because it has propitiation in there. Look, Hallelujah. But wallow in propitiation. Understand what it means. You don't have to be afraid to die. Therefore, you don't have to be afraid to live. The Lord's taken away your judgment. Jesus is your judgment day. As Michael Card wrote and sang years ago, we jubilee, 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 Jesus is my jubilee. To look into your judge's face and see a Savior there. Jubilee. You're forgiven. 
God cannot love you more than he does today. He'll never love you less. Well, what does that look like? Let's move on, therefore, into through Jesus, who is the remnant, who is our substitute in life, death, and resurrection, with whom we share union right now because of his glorious work. Now consider with me the absolutely inconceivable way God is towards us now. Move down with me to verse 17. Three phrases here that maybe your grandmother calligraphied for you or put on a pillow somewhere through nice cross-stitching. But again, let's look at them carefully. Through the finished work of Jesus, our judgment, our punishment that we deserve has been exhausted, all of it, forever. But now, here's what God right now, if the question is, so what does God think about me right now, right now as I sit here? How is God viewing me? In fact, let me put this question before you. Here's a very valid question that we need to be wrestling with so that we can really help our people work with. Here's the question for you, however, not your congregation. Right now, as you sit here, August the 4th, 5th, what is it? 5th, right, 5th, 2014. What does God think about you right now, and what can you do about it? I don't want you to answer me. I want you to deal with it yourself. What does God think about you right now, and what can you do about it? Why the second phrase? Because some of us probably would say, well, I think he likes me. I, had, I, I read the whole of Second Chronicles this past week. <laughs> Some are thinking, you know, I haven't had a quiet time in four months. I'm just trying to pay the bill so I can plant a church. I bet he's kind of patting his foot, furrowing his brow right now. Well, folks, there's no doubt about what God thinks about all of his people right now. Look at these three phrases. The Lord will be with you. He, will be, he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. Now, that anticipates the work of Jesus, so we're not... Please don't push that now into the eschaton. Please don't push that into, yeah, when Jesus comes back and finishes the whole enchilada, he's really going to like me then. No, we're talking about a work the remnant has done on behalf of the people of God. It's why we call it amazing, scintillating, astonishing, effusive grace. It's so over the top. I think we maybe need to have, need to have a new song, Amazing Grace, because if we sing that, we can almost push our nose and sing it, and it's... Sometimes not as amazing as it should be. Right now, um, the Lord doesn't just delight in every single one of you that's in Christ. He greatly delights in you. Second question of the afternoon. When in your life have you been a part of a relationship where you've got a taste of that, where you would say, I don't know who it was. Maybe it was your, you know, like me, my maternal grandmother, but... What relationship have you experienced in life where you sensed you were enjoyed and delighted in not because of your grades, not because of the home run you hit, not because you cut the grass and did not go over the flowers? When have you been, when have you been enjoyed not because of anything you did? Can any of you right now tell me a person that's been positioned in your life that gives you a taste of what it means to be delighted in not only not because of what you've done, but sometimes in spite of what you've done. What comes to mind and heart? What relationship have you tasted that in? Say that. Your mother. Can you tell us just briefly about what that meant? Um, you had a mother that delighted in you. How far back can you remember that? Far back as you can remember. What an amazing, and you know, your face glowing, it, it shows that 
that wouldn't have far reached for you. You could say, what, what an incredible gift. I only knew my mom for 11 years of my life. I think that's the mom she was. I did have a maternal grandmother who had these big grandmotherly bosoms that would just pull her grandkids in and just love you. Thought, there's the safe haven. There's the rock of ages cleft for me. I'm, I am in grandmother's bosom. I mean, I'll be honest, this woman, my grandmother, she and my grandfather were married 72 years. They were Salvation Army. My, grandma, my grandmother played the trombone Salvation Army band. My grandfather, the bass drum. They had a hard life. My mom's youngest of five siblings was a heroin addict for 10 years. My grandparents suffered. My grandfather had clinical depression. But you know what? I saw them at their table when I would go as a grandchild to be at their table, they would give us the most amazing homemade fig preserves and cow butter at the top of the churn on this big old bread. And then they would take out that little plastic loaf of bread, take a verse out, read it, and then pray for their children and grandchildren. And tears would just come down their faces because they wanted their family, they wanted their kids to know Jesus. And grandmother, when my mom died, her big old grandmotherly bosoms were safety for me. There's nothing I could do that would diminish her love for me. That was a small anticipation of the day that I would begin to understand. Though a mother should forget her nursing children, I will never forget you. And folks, right now, you know, a lot of us wrongly think that if you married the right person, had somebody else's kids, were in the perfect church, you would be delighted in. Folks, every longing of your soul to be deeply enjoyed, known, loved, and accepted is right here. And the tastes we enjoy and give each other in our marriages and in our families and community, it's just a taste. It's a reflector of this. And it's real. And by God's grace, let's do more of it. Because that's what a culture of grace does for the washed and the unwashed. But please understand right now, the Lord greatly delights in you. And I love the second phrase here, the way old NIV 84 translates it. The second aspect of the Lord being someone inconceivable towards us. He will quiet you with his love. That part of verse 17 has been profoundly a part of my sanctification. In fact, I would, I would suggest to you this weekend that if you want a good image of sanctification, think of it as the love of God quieting you. Because really, what is our sin? What is our idolatry but our foolish, poor stewarding of our restlessness? And for the love of God to quiet us means this, that whatever it is, the guilt, the shame, the brokenness, the issues, the anger, the disconnect, the disappointments, all that, here is our God. In fact, Martin Luther, here's how he translated the Hebrew of this phrase. Luther said, this is an intended double entendre. It not only talks about the effect of God's love on us, which quiets us, which some of us need this conference. We need to be quieted by the love of God. But Luther suggested before that is that God is quiet in his love towards us. His controversy with us is over. Oh, that we would understand that we have peace with God because he's made his peace with us. You remember the old cowboy westerns, John Wayne and all, pull out the six-shooter, the bad guy's on the ground, or the bad guy's got the good guy, and what does he say? Make your peace with God. Folks, we could never make our peace with God. God made his peace with us, Steve. God's at peace with us. That's why we look him in the eye now, right? We're going to have his name on our foreheads one day. But already it was for his beloved sons. 
He will quiet with his love. Well, what might that look like for this conference? And this conference maybe is a jump starter for the next season in your life. Where are you restless? Where are you like Jonah, so wanting a one-way ticket to Tarshish? Still got a good theology. Still would say, push my nose. I know you to be a God abounding in mercy, slow to anger. That's why I want to die. You ever felt a disconnected heartbeat within your breast? Yes, you have. Steward it well. It's a God that would quiet you. Lastly, third thing, because of the gospel, because of the finished work of Jesus, when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the therefore is, now this is the way I am towards all my covenant people. He will rejoice over you with singing. We love to sing. It was awesome hearing you guys already sing. But what do we do with the God that serenades us? Where do we hear God sing the loudest to us and over us? It's in the gospel. It's in his amazing grace. Let me give you one image, but I need to come down here. Lose some of my pastoral decorum, okay? So, we, Darlene, and I moved, Darlene and I moved to Nashville in 19... almost blew that one. almost was really broken, like a broken leg. So, Darlene and I moved to Nashville in 1979. And when we first came to town, I was... My first calling in the city of Nashville was youth pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Nashville. Now, the inside of their sanctuary looks like a wedding cake. We're talking a very formal, beautiful... Uh, here in Nashville, Tennessee, you think of Vanderbilt, Vanderbilt University, the Vanderbilt family and all. So this was old school, deep pocket, blue blood Nashville. I'm the youth pastor. I actually permed my hair in those days. <laughs> Remember men that used to perm their hair? Didn't you pity them? <laughs> I still have some pictures. Darlene won't let me throw them away. She said, remember the day, honey, remember the day. So I had a perm thing going for me, and uh, it was 1979, and I did my first wedding. First wedding in this you know, very formal church. Wonderful, godly man, Cortez Alonzo Cooper, was a senior pastor and a very godly man that God used in the city to proclaim biblical absolutes over a, an enculturated city that assumes the gospel more than it really understands and believes the gospel. So, you know, first wedding... It's going to be a formal, it's a seven o'clock Saturday night wedding. You know what that means when the sun goes down for a wedding? What does everybody wear? Formal. A formal wedding, the youth pastor doing his first wedding. So, you know, I think I got my mojo on. I think I got everything right, okay? Couple that, you know, love. So we, we come in, and this is a long sanctuary. And again, you know, big, gigantic pipe organ thing going on. And so I'm, I'm standing uh, I, I bring all the, I bring the, uh, um, the groom and the bridesmaids in. Excuse me, the, the groom and the groomsmen in. Yeah, that would have really blown the night. <laughs> so we're standing there. I'm on the top step, I mean the, the step above the floor, and then here's the groom beside me, and there's the, the guys. And then, of course, the wedding party starts coming. The uh, beautiful bridesmaids, long, a lot of music. Well, the moment comes, they close the doors again, of course, and then you, you know what's about to happen. The bride's going to slip over in place. We can't see her yet, but her father's going to be there on arm. And then they're going to do, you know, the big trumpet volunteer or one of those big Bach, like Bachy pieces. It's glorious. What is the trumpet song they play, Jenny? What is it called at the beginning of a wedding? The, is it the wedding march? I don't know what it is. We, we all know it when we hear it. It's like a piccolo thing going. It's really, you know, you're supposed to stand up when it happens. Well, the doors open. And the groom standing beside me all of a sudden starts running up the aisle towards the bride. I just 
first thought, I just lost my job. <laughs> you know, I've just humiliated, you know, no, I didn't stay frozen. He really, he saw her, he, the groom, started moving towards her. I went and grabbed him, pulled him back up, got him beside me. But you know what, and I almost did not want to make eye contact, especially with the mother of the bride. But then when I did, I saw her tears. And you know, in that moment, we all realized, when have we seen a young man so rejoicing in his bride that he would come for her? Folks, when you hear the scripture say to us that our God sings over us. You remember when that shows up again? You ought to read Ray's exposition of this and his great preachment of Isaiah and his commentary on Isaiah. Isaiah 62, this Savior of ours, he is the bridegroom that rejoices over us and sings. And he, Jesus, is so much more looking forward to his second coming than you are and I am because he loves us like that. And that's what this gospel is all about. We all matter. None of us is the point. He's the point. But we get to be a giant bridal party for each other. What's discipleship? It's preparing each other for the wedding. It's coming alive to the great love. And guess what? We're all the bride. There's so much more I want to say. One final thought, then I pray. Please read the rest of Zephaniah 3. Because it shows us that as God makes these great declarations of his commitment to be an outrageously generous redeemer of a non-deserving, ill-deserving people, he speaks to us. He comes to us always. And then really from verses 18 through 20, what you pick up on, and look, check this out. This is so cool. This is the third phrase I gave you. The Lord will accomplish something irrepressible through us. The rest of the scripture shows us what I said earlier is Luther said, the gospel is always running. It has legs. And as we come alive to the love of God, individually in our marriages, that gospel of grace might run towards our spouse. It might run towards our kids. And certainly for we in vocational ministry, the best thing we can always do for the non-believers in our community and the believers in our church is to stay alive, to come alive to this grace. Because... The promises at the end of chapter 3 are, the Lord says, I'm going to rescue the lame. I mean, the Lord starts rattling off what he's going to do through a renewed people. I so pray that these three days, you're going to find hope for your heart because you really do matter. And I hope you can be encouraged to know that the Lord is going to use you wherever you are. Folks, there's parts of the world right now, parts of Latin America, where a missionary can sneeze and a whole village come to Christ. There are parts of the world where missionary labors 17 years before they see a half of a convert. It's all God's story. Our calling is not to be successful, but faithful. But not only that, our calling is not just to be faithful, it's to believe the gospel. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the privilege that we have these few days to be together. And... Um, Lord, I, uh, Darlene and I both need these three days. Lord, uh, so many issues swirling around in our world. And we need, to, we need to hear it, believe it, taste it, and extend it again. Lord, be with us. Lord, all the team here, this remarkable community, pray even now, Lord, for Ray's preaching tonight. Lord, thank you so much for the joy of watching 
a grace culture merge at Emmanuel Church. Pray for all of us, Lord, that we would give each other the permission to be the chief repenter at the conference. Lord, may no one outdo us in kindness because we know that it's your kindness that leads any one of us to repentance. May we love as we are loved. Lord, thank you for this gospel where I have misspoken in any way whatever I've suggested or preached that is not consistent with Scripture. Lord, may it be the first thing forgotten. But Lord, where we've been true to the text of your word, Lord, so wrap it around our hearts, we would be different. We pray together in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.